First Peter chapter one. And as we get started, I want to read our text for today, which is. Verses 10 through 12. First Peter one. Beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. I want to begin the message today with a reminder of a passage back in the book of Matthew. Matthew 13 to be specific. And in Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom of heaven. And he does so through a number of parables in that chapter. And in verses 44 through 46, he gives two parables. I think most of us are probably familiar with them. Where he, in the first one, equates the kingdom of heaven to a treasure hidden in a field. And he says, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I mean, I kind of laugh as I think about the way these, these stories would have gone down. Of course, they're parables. They're not true stories, but I think we can imagine a little bit. You, know, you can imagine this man. I don't think this man was married, probably. And the reason I say that is because if he goes home and tells his wife that there's this field... And I want, to, I want to just sell everything we have so I can buy that field. I mean, those of us who are married here, we, we know that conversation wouldn't have gone very well. We kind of get that look like, are you sure this is a good investment? I mean, it's a field. But this man knew that there was something in that field, buried, that no one else could see, that was worth selling everything he had so he could own that field because of what was in that field. The principle, of course, is true with the the man searching for pearls who finds this one pearl of great value and is willing to sell everything he has in order to buy that one pearl because of its value. And Jesus compared or used these parables to teach us the significance of the kingdom of heaven. His point to his disciples is the kingdom of heaven or what we, what we might call just salvation or the, the grace of God that has, that has come through the gospel, to kind of put it in, in language that we can understand, is so valuable, it's worth the abandonment of everything else for the pursuit of it. Our salvation is of infinite value. But the question that I had, and, and perhaps you have, is how is it that the joy and sacrifice spoken of in, in those parables seems so strange to us. I mean, even those of us who have experienced salvation, that seems like a, a strange thing. 
And I think the simple answer to that question is that we, we do not value the salvation that we have received the way that Jesus teaches us that we ought to and we should. We don't view our salvation the way Jesus taught his disciples to view the salvation that had come through himself. You see, we are so familiar with the gospel that we have become utterly unimpressed with what we possess in it. Of course, I'm making a bit of a generalization there. I'm not saying that every one of us has a low view of our salvation, but I think, I think most of us would confess, if we were honest, that in our day-to-day life, we, we often think little of, of what we have received in our salvation. And in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, Peter concludes this section that he's started his epistle with. This section where he is reminding his readers of this living hope, as he calls it. The enduring inheritance that is theirs through Christ. And he's painting this picture of of what they have received. Because they need, they, need to, they need to understand what they have received because they are right now suffering. They have been dispersed. They've been kicked out of their homes into a, another land. They are enduring persecution because of Christ. And they need to understand the value of what they have in their salvation. And so in his conclusion to this section... He points out for us two big realities of our our salvation. Speaking to his original audience and then to us as well through the word of God. These two big realities that when we consider them, I believe will help motivate us to treasure our salvation in new and deeper ways. And I hope that's what God by his spirit can do for us today. So the first big reality that I want us to see that that Peter points out here is the fact that we as Christians possess the knowledge and we possess the experience of the mystery of salvation. We possess the knowledge and experience of the mystery of salvation. See, when the prophets prophesied, and this is what Peter is talking about here in verse 10, when the prophets prophesied about the sufferings of Christ, the the messianic work, the things that were to come, when they prophesied that, they didn't fully understand all the time what it was they were prophesying. We know that because Peter writes that when they prophesied, they searched and inquired about what it was they were writing. How was all of this going to come about? When was this going to happen? These two words translated here, searched and inquired carefully, tip us off to the intensity of their search. These are, this is an investigation. This wasn't just that they kind of browsed through, you know, the rest of the Bible and tried to figure it out or, you know, asked a few wise men what, what all this meant. This, they, they gave themselves to the task of figuring this out. It's like a detective putting together all of the clues, trying to piece together what it was that they were prophesying about. 
We have a few examples even recorded for us back in the Old Testament of, of, of this happening. One I want to just bring to our attention is from Daniel. The prophet Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 9. He talks about and records that as he studied the prophecy of Jeremiah, another one of the Old Testament prophets. <coughs> excuse me. He perceived in the books the number of years that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. That's something that Jeremiah prophesied. And, in, and Daniel, in his, in his study, perceived that that was to be 70 years. And then as he went to the Lord and, and, and sought more information, God gave him a vision. And, and much of the rest of the book of Daniel is this vision and visions that God gives Daniel about what was to come. But even at the end of those visions that God gives Daniel in response to this searching out of what Jeremiah's prophecy had meant, at the end of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Basically, God's answer to Daniel was, it's not for you to know. It's, it's, not, it's not to be revealed right now. I mean, this, this is what a biblical mystery is. It's something that is, that is hidden for a time and will be revealed at a later time. And even the, the text in 1 Peter tells us a little bit more of what God revealed to these prophets. He revealed to them, verse 12, that in their prophesying, they were not serving just themselves. But they were serving you and me. And the, these readers of First Peter. By providing for them that which was, was to be announced. The good news that was going to be announced. About the sufferings of Christ and His glory. So this was the mystery that the Old Testament prophets sought, had limited understanding of, got some answers, but ultimately they were serving us and not simply themselves. And so we possess the knowledge of this mystery. We have experienced as Christians the reality of, of what was a mystery. Jesus says also, in Matthew 13. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is blessing for us. That which the prophets longed to understand. We, we have. We, it has been revealed to us. And I would even add a little bit more to this. It wasn't just the prophets who were searching these things, trying to figure out what they were speaking of. But verse 12 ends with this statement that these are things into which angels long to look. <coughs> angels are interesting beings. In our day, 
really, I don't think we think of angels a whole lot. Maybe just thinking of guardian angels or the picture of angels kind of flying around with their wings, playing harps. I don't think we spend a whole lot of time thinking about even what the Bible tells us about angels. But I think in the early church, there was, there was some understanding or at least some interest in and knowledge of, of angels. Peter deals with, talks about angels here. The writer of Hebrews begins his book with a comparison between Christ and angels, revealing the superiority of Christ over angels. So I think the early church had some sort of they had some sort of view of angels that perhaps we don't share. That this this would have maybe been more significant for them than it is for us. <coughs> but Peter's point really is that we are privileged to have received the gospel, to receive salvation. These are things that that angels. What it says basically is, angels are looking at these things from from afar. These are things that the angels have have no experience of. The angels have no need of experiencing salvation. But we we as as people that have have experienced salvation are are really in a in a better a much more blessed position than even the angels who who long to look at what God was doing in saving a people. And so Peter's point to 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 his readers and to us that we sit in a privileged position because God has chosen to reveal, to make known the mystery of salvation to us. Using the Old Testament prophets to point to it and then to reveal it in full through His Son. So we understand it because God has blessed us to, to make us understand to create in us a heart that believes and is transformed by the power of this salvation. So the first big reality that, that Peter brings out here is the fact that we possess this knowledge and experience of the mystery of salvation. Something that the Old Testament prophets searched intently to try to figure out God has revealed to us. The second big reality of our salvation that Peter draws out here for his readers is that the means of our salvation is the sufferings and glory of Christ. The means of our salvation is the sufferings and glory of Christ. I think it's worthy of our our noticing that Peter here equates or at the very least lumps the two things together that the sufferings, what the prophets prophesied. In verse 10, he talks about them prophesying the grace that was to be yours. And then in verse 11, he talks about them predicting the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. These two things are the same. This is the same thing. The sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glory is the same thing as the grace that was to be ours. And this connection between Christ's sufferings and the grace that we receive because of it has major theological implications for, for those of us that have received the salvation. This truth has great meaning 
for us and our understanding of, of our salvation. We are going to treasure our salvation as something that is worth abandoning all to receive and worth the value that Jesus tells us it has. We need to understand a little bit more about what God was doing in, in the sufferings of Christ, His glory, and the grace that is ours. First thing I want us to note in this is that we have experienced grace through suffering. This, this, is, a, this is a theological truth that is important for us to understand, that, that the grace of God has come to us by means of suffering. I think it's ironic that, that the salvation of our souls have been won through suffering. This battle, this cosmic battle over sin and death and Satan has been won through suffering. Most victors in, in battle win because they inflict suffering on their opponent and thereby defeat them. But in this battle over sin, Christ defeated death and Satan by himself receiving the suffering and thereby, and thereby winning this battle. I mean, this is, the, this is one of those paradoxes of the gospel. One of those things that does not make sense how suffering brings about victory. In the Old Testament... This is, this is what these prophets were speaking of. They, they were speaking about this Messiah who would come and suffer. One of those prophecies, one we know very well, Isaiah 53. I mean, I could read the whole chapter, but let me just read verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And while this reality is inappropriate for some, that, that Christ would suffer in this way, that Christ would be smitten by God, the Christ would be crushed for our iniquities. Many view that as, as inappropriate of God and unpalatable. But we know from, from God's revelation to us that this is, was absolutely necessary. This was the way that it had to go. For Jesus to endure this form of suffering in our place, in order that we might experience God's saving grace. I mean, that's what Peter talks about, calls in verse 12 of, of chapter 1, the good news. This was the good news that had been preached. And we can go through the book of Acts and see the things that Peter himself and, and the other apostles preached. They preached the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I mean, they preached, they took the Old Testament prophecies and they told their audience that these things have, have come to pass through Christ. This was the good news that they had received. This is the good news that we received, that Jesus 
suffered in our place. This theme of substitutionary death unfolded throughout the Old Testament. We find it all over the place as God revealed, began to reveal and unfold that mystery. From when he provided the ram as a substitute for Isaac. The ram died in the place of Isaac. We saw it introduced in the book of Exodus when the tabernacle was built. And God instituted these sacrifices whereby the people could bring an animal to die in their place for their sins. This motif of of suffering, substitutionary suffering and death. I mean, this mystery of, of what the Messiah would do was a mystery to Peter himself. You remember Matthew 16. Peter makes a great confession. God, God gives insight to Peter where Peter tells Jesus that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And not a few verses later, when Jesus begins to talk about his need to go up to Jerusalem to suffer and die... What does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and says, that's never going to happen to you. And God tells him basically that you're doing the work of Satan by preventing me from doing that which is necessary. But following the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter began to understand It was revealed more and more to him why it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die. Even to the point, I think it's neat that in 1 Peter 2.24, the next chapter of our book, Peter paraphrases Isaiah 53 when he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We see even there in in Peter's experience, he went from not understanding what the Messiah had come to do to grasping it and being able to minister to others the truth that Jesus came to suffer in our place and die in our place. And even to make an application to perhaps similar to to the one Peter would have made to the people that he's writing to, those that are suffering. Our suffering is not a sign of being abandoned by God, that He has left us. Rather, our suffering is, is simply an indication that we are living in identification with Christ and the fellowship of His sufferings. God has not abandoned us in our suffering. But he is present with us. And I want to, want to take that and, and jump one more step. So first, in, in seeing the sufferings of Christ, we know that we have, we have experienced grace through his suffering. But also we have hope because we, because of his suffering, will not experience ultimate suffering. Because of Christ's sufferings in our place, We have no fear of suffering without the presence of God. 
Paul explicitly rejoices in the fact in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 when he writes about faith in Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, there is a suffering, there is a wrath that is coming on all of those that do not know Christ. There is a punishment for sin on all of those that have not received the grace that comes through Jesus' suffering. And so we have great hope that because of our salvation, we are saved from ultimate suffering. This is not simply a matter, I don't think, of of telling ourselves when we suffer that what could be worse. You know, what, what I am suffering, I can get through because it could be worse. I don't, I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's helpful. There's a difference that goes beyond simply that sort of comparison. The suffering to come, the wrath to come that Paul talks about is a, is a suffering outside the presence of God. I mean, that's, that's really what makes it such a terrible suffering is that God is not there. That's the absence of God is suffering in and of itself. But the, the people that Peter's writing to, you and I today, when we suffer, we don't suffer outside the presence of God. We suffer with Him. And even the fact that Christ suffered, He identifies with us and He, he suffered... He knows what it's like to suffer. And He is there with us when we suffer. But this is the heart of the gospel, that Christ suffered in our place. So that we do not experience the ultimate suffering that is coming. But instead, we receive and share in the glory that is His. This glory that the prophets prophesied. Peter refers to in verse 11, the sufferings of Christ, the subsequent glories. We share in that in Christ. And so rather than tell ourselves that our suffering could be worse, therefore let's just buck up and get through it. We look to Christ We look to the joy that is ahead of us in His presence. Where sin will be removed and suffering will be no more. Because we are fully in His presence. And so we look look to Him. I just want to make a couple other applications in in this vein of of our experience of suffering in our lives. Suffering is is really the as one commentator I read called it the Christward way. I mean this this is when we are in Christ, we are progressing through life toward that that ultimate fulfillment of being and living in Christ's presence. 
along that path, that path is going to be littered with suffering. It doesn't say that all Christians will suffer to the same degree. It doesn't mean we seek out suffering. But what it means is that we realize that we live in a world broken by sin. Therefore, our experience is affected by that brokenness. And so we suffer because other people inflict that on us. And they do that because they are sinners. They have been affected by sin. We, we suffer in, our, in ourselves because we are sinners and, and we, we inflict this because of our sin. We live in in the midst of a world broken by sin. And so we should not be surprised when we suffer. Jesus suffered. It shouldn't be a surprise when his people suffer. Paul makes that point in his writings. But in the midst of that brokenness, we have something to arrest our attention. And it's the salvation that we have received. It's the enduring hope that we have that that Peter is writing to to his readers about. It's the hope of the everlasting joys that will be ours in the future. So for those suffering, treasure the salvation that is yours through Christ. Look to Christ. And in looking to Christ, His Spirit will will overcome in our hearts through that. Now, what I don't want to say is that the suffering will be gone. But this grace that was to be ours is is not a a one-time grace that only happens at the moment of salvation. This is a, a grace that affects our lives every day. It's grace that enables us to get up in the morning and go on when we don't feel like it, when, when life is difficult. That's the grace that has come to us because of, of the sufferings of Christ and His victory over sin. And then just a word for those of us that minister to sufferers. Because we will. And as we, we, as we minister to people who are suffering, our counsel to them, our encouragements to them must be faithful to what God has revealed in His Word. Our, our counsel, our encouragement must not be just our own wisdom. You see, it's possible to try to help someone By simply making them feel better and not helping them at all because what we say is is not true or it's not what they need to understand in that moment. I mean, we we saw earlier that really uh, the gospel is is a paradox. And this, this is what confused 
the people in Christ's day and, and, and even have confused people to this day. That the way that God accomplished the salvation of sinners is not the way most people would have drawn it up. And so I, I think the lesson in that for us is what the, the way we would draw up a solution for people that need help, people that are suffering. If we come up with that on our own, it's probably not going to be the best way to go about it, the best advice and counsel. Rather, we, we must turn to the Word, to that which has been revealed. Turn to the good news that has been announced by the Holy Spirit. This message of salvation. Then I just want to broaden out our application a little bit as spend the rest of our time talking about this idea of treasuring our salvation. Go back to where I began. The necessity of treasuring this thing that we have. And I have to be honest that when I think about how to apply this text to us today, and as I thought about exhorting you to treasure your salvation, there was a little bit of a a thought in my mind of, really, that's it? There's got to be something more helpful to give to these people than just treasure the thing you have. I mean, it almost, it almost seems like a cop-out for a preacher to just kind of say, okay, you, you know what it is, just treasure that thing. There's got to be something more practical to it, right? But the more and more I've thought about it, and even seeing the, the, the teaching of Jesus in those parables in Matthew 13, I think the lesson for us today is that we we have something of of great value. We have something that prophets and angels throughout the centuries would love to have what we have. There's going to be time and and text in in coming weeks to give us some, some practical exhortations about what we do with this information. But I think for today, for this week, we, we just need to kind of stop and take in what we have to realize the riches that are ours in this salvation. At the beginning, I alluded to the fact that it's easy for many of us to say with our mouths that, yes, this is a great salvation. Jesus has done an awesome thing in, in suffering in our place. And yet we don't, we don't treasure the salvation as we ought to. We don't value what we have on a day-to-day basis the way that we ought to, the way that we should. Why is this the case? And there are certainly many reasons for why this is the case. If I, if I went around the room and asked each person why that was the case, I'm sure we could come up with a different answer for each person. Let me just suggest a few things or a few reasons why we do not treasure 
what we have in our salvation, the way that we should. First reason I want to submit is that some, many of us have been saved too long. And if you're someone that has has known this salvation for any length of time, I think you understand what I mean when I say we have been saved too long. The point is that we are too far removed from that moment where we realize that apart from Christ, we are hopeless. And in that moment, we recognize our need and we, we see the rescuer. We see the, the hope for our hopelessness and we reach out and we experience salvation. And you know what it's like in, in that moment and days following it's a wonderful thing. You, you, you understand what it meant to be saved. And then as time goes by, we, 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 just, we forget what it was like when God opened our eyes to, to see the truth of the gospel and, and to turn in faith to Christ. Secondly, I think we've defined... In some ways, we have defined the gospel in our own terms. What I mean by that is what the Bible presents as as truth. We reshape and redefine into what we want it to say, what we believe it should be. And in doing so, we really blunt the reality of, of our salvation. The reality of what God has accomplished. And I think this can even take the form of, of having accurate understandings of the gospel, but, but having one-dimensional views of the gospel. For instance, just to give an example, it's possible for us, as we talk about Christ's suffering in our place, this idea of substitutionary atonement, Jesus facing the wrath of God so that we would not experience the wrath to come. And it's possible to to view the gospel so much through that lens and that lens alone that we miss other aspects of the gospel. We miss other aspects of our salvation. And it limits our, our view of the gospel. And so we we don't we don't have the full view. We we're not seeing the gospel in all of its fullness. Therefore, we don't treasure it because we don't understand all of it. And third reason I think third of many that we do not treasure the gospel is because we we have forgotten how to think deeply i think to some degree most of us deal with a bit of add when it comes to focusing our minds on contemplating biblical truth Research tells us that our minds have been conditioned by technology to to shift from thing to thing quickly. No time to stay on this thing. Have to move to the next. 
fact, I saw in one place that most people, there's been research done, most people never finish reading articles online. It takes too long. In fact, many people share those, art, those same articles, share them on other social networking sites without even having read most of it. And I think the same thing can be true of our, the, the way that we read and, and study and think about God's Word and, and, and theological truth. It's too easy for our minds just to kind of shift from thing to thing. And rather than spending time thinking deeply about one thing, our minds are just get scattered with, with many things. I mean, I'm talking good things, biblical things. And this is why it's often difficult for us to read older theological material. I mean, I think it's hard for even most of us to make it through reading a, just a Puritan sermon title. It takes forever. We don't have the attention span to make it through. But I think there's real value in disciplining our minds to stop, to slow down, and think deeply about theological truth. So that that truth saturates our thinking. So it goes deep into our heart and affects the way that we think and ultimately the way that we live. So there is a infinite value of this salvation that, that we possess. Let us treasure it. It's worth, certainly worth pursuing. If you do not know Christ, this, this is a message of hope. This, this is a necessary message, this message of the gospel. For those without Christ, there is a wrath that is coming because of your sin. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus has taken that wrath in the place of sinners. And if you trust Christ and trust the sufferings of Christ, you will be freed from from that wrath to come. And for those of us that have experienced this salvation, let us understand what it is that we have. And as we pick up in verse 13 next week and and we will see some of the things that Peter exhorts us to do on account of the salvation that we have received. Let us stop for a week and, and get ready for that by taking in, thinking deeply, contemplating seriously the salvation that we have received. Letting it saturate our heart. So that, it cha- so that it changes the way that we think and the way that we live. Father, I thank you for the revelation that we have through your word, the, the opportunity that we have 
to understand what it is that you have revealed, that you have made known through your word. We are thankful that we have experienced the salvation from our sins and though we still experience the effects of of sin that has broken this world the sin that has broken our lives and affects us every day we are thankful that there is hope that the battle over sin is is not in the balance right now but the battle over sin has has been won already And we simply await the final consummation of that victory. And so give us eyes of faith to to see that. Enable our hearts to, to rest in Christ. Even when our hearts dwell in the midst of restlessness. I pray that before we get too far down the line of looking for the things that we need to do now, that you would enable us to stop and think and and consider and meditate on, on what we have. What is ours in Christ? I pray that you would receive the the glory through what we have learned today. May our eyes be firmly fixed on our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in His name. Amen.